Well, good afternoon, Hallows Church. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor here, and I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures this afternoon. So let me invite you to grab your Bibles and find your way to Psalm 19, uh, the passage of scripture we'll be diving into together here in a few moments. But today we're kickstarting a new series titled Drawing Near, and this is the series that's going to take us through the summer, Lord willing. And basically, we're going to take some time to square our minds' attention and our hearts' affections upon the attributes of God, looking at his character, looking at what God is like and, and why we, he's worthy of our worship, why he is worthy of our trust, why he is worthy of our lives. And so the, the drive of this series is really kind of coming out of a book I read several years ago now called The Knowledge of the Holy by a man named A.W. Tozer. And in this book, he issues a charge to the church in his generation, and I think the same charge applies to our generation today. Listen to what he says. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. What does our idea of God reveal about who we are as a faith family? What does our idea of God reveal about who we are as followers of Jesus in the city of Seattle today? We want to make sure we're thinking high thoughts of our high God, that we are thinking worthy thoughts of our worthy God. And so we're going to take these next few weeks to examine various attributes, exploring in more depth who God is and what God is like. And and it starts tonight by looking at Uh, what we're describing as the openness of God. Now, when you hear that phrase, the openness of God, your mind uh, might go in one direction that I don't want it to go in. See, some of you perhaps are studying theology and you're into that type of book learning and and you're aware of this movement uh, that is off base by a wide margin called open theism or open theology. And it's the idea that God is really big, but he doesn't really, uh, the future is open to God. That he only knows the future by way of contingent possibilities. And I know that's a big thought, but I just want to disarm that thought in your mind right now. When I say the openness of God, I am not talking about that. I'm talking about something far more faithful, something far more true about who our God is. And that's the reality that God opens himself up to us. That God is a God who wants to be known. That God is a God who wants relationship, and he created us in in his image so that we might be wired with the capacity to know him truly and to know him faithfully. And the reality is, any any person on the planet could live their entire lives without being known. I could keep myself from being known by every one of you. All I have to do is stop communicating, just close myself off, cut myself off, and never 
disclose myself to any of you by sharing my thoughts with you, by sharing my feelings with you, by sharing my desires with you. I could keep every one of you from knowing who I am, and you could do the same with each other. And we can expand that up to our thoughts of God, recognizing that God could keep us from knowing who he is. He could have created the universe, wound it up like a cock, and let it run while he remained distant and remote and closed off from the happenings in the universe he created. But what you're going to see in Psalm 19 is that God did not do that. It's the openness of God that God would disclose himself and reveal himself to us in some remarkable ways so that we might know him truly and worship him in a way that would honor him and satisfy, satisfy our souls. So that's what I mean when I talk about the openness of God tonight. Now, one of the unique features of this series is that we have a n- number of artists in our church. Here in the Fremont Expression, in our North Expression, in the West Seattle Expression, a number of artists who are going to help enhance our time together week in and week out when we come together to look at these attributes. And they're going to do so by uh, providing us with pieces of art that they have dreamt up and that they've expressed through various mediums for us to look at and for us to behold and for us to interact with. And the first piece uh, of the series, and as we go on, they're going to they're gonna collect and accumulate, and we're going to have a, uh, several pieces of art that we will be able to display around us as we continue pressing into this series together. The first piece was uh, given to us by one of our college students named Lily Hunter, and this is her take on the openness of God after reading and reflecting upon Psalm 19, and, and I would encourage you at some point in time before you leave, maybe come get a closer look. I know it's on the screen behind me, but uh, just come and just look at the art and meditate upon it, consider it in light of what we're going to study here in a moment in Psalm 19, because we're talking tonight about the openness of God, and we're looking at one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. Psalm 19, another way of saying it is Song 19, as the book of Psalms is a collection of songs written by several authors. This one is ascribed to David, who wrote this song of sorts, and it's so poetic and it's so beautiful that C.S. Lewis, when he was meditating upon the Psalms, he would say that, that this is the greatest poem in all the Psalter. And it is one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And it's not hard to see its beauty and its symmetry and its, the, the images that, he, that are presented to us about the openness of God in this passage. And I want to identify really three ways that God opens himself up to us uh, in light of this psalm. The first way that God opens himself, opens himself to us is found there in verses 1 through 6. And we might describe it this way. That God opens his glory to us in his creation. He opens his glory to us in creation. Check it out in verse 1 again. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. There is, their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to their other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Saying that God opens his glory to us in creation. That there's a sense when every time we walk outside and we look up, we are confronted with the glory of God. We are confronted with his greatness. We are confronted with his majesty. We are confronted with his power. 
That creation is singing that song constantly. That's why you have this this pervasive refrain in verse 2, day after day, night after night, God's glory is being declared in and through creation. So we're constantly confronted with this message. We're constantly confronted with the reality of God every time we step outside and we look up. Now, I love the fact that David doesn't feel the burden to argue for God's existence in this psalm. This isn't an argument. This isn't persuasion. This is poetry. This is worship. This is a man whose heart is enthralled with who his God is, and he's worshiping the creator with the words that are being written down. And so he's not arguing for the existence of God. He's assuming that since human beings are created in the image of God, there's a sense in which deep down in the heart of hearts of every human being, there's an awareness of this reality. Because every time a human being steps outside, they are confronted with the glory of creation that is to serve as a signpost, pointing us to the greater glory of God. As the heavens declare his glory and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. You see, when God created us in his image, as part of the created order, he imprinted upon our conscience an awareness of God, a sense of God. This is why spiritualities and religions exist in the world. It is this, imago, this aspect of the Imago Dei trying to surface and to find its way to its, appro- to its uh, desired and intended end. And of course, left to ourselves, we don't find the right end, do we? Which is why there's a lot of distortions about who God is, why there's a lot of distortions about uh, what spirituality is and what it should be. There's a lot of distortions and deceptions. And so what we need then is for God to open himself up to us with greater clarity than we could have ever possibly dreamed of. And this is precisely what God does. This is precisely what he does when he opens himself up to us to be known. And so he opens his glory to us in creation that we can step outside, look up, and be brought into an awareness of the bigness, the power, the majesty of our God. But not only is this message constant and that it's always happening, this message is pervasive. It's everywhere. This is why when you jump into verse 3, it says, there is no speech, no words, there's voice that is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. It is everywhere. And then when you get into verse 5 and 6, what was David talking about there? He's talking about the heavens, the skies. And he describes in poetic fashion the rising and the setting of the sun, the movement of the sun across the sky from his perception. And he describes it in such poetic language. And this is where we begin to see some of the brilliance of this psalm, the genius of it. The genius of this psalm and how God, what, what, what David is cueing our hearts and minds into is this. You know, not every person on the planet is going to see Mount Rainier. Not every person on the planet is going to see the oceans. Not every person on the planet is going to study and understand the intricacies of the human eyeball. Not every person on the planet is going to be able to dive into the language of God and human DNA and exploring some of those in-depth scientific discoveries and developments. Not every person on the planet is going to be exposed to that, but I guarantee you, I guarantee you every person on the planet at some point in time looks up and they see the sky. Do you see the genius of it? Do you see the brilliance of, of what is being written in this psalm? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. That God opens his glory to us in creation and every person on the planet is exposed to this, is confronted by that reality. And when you get into the New Testament, you find the Apostle Paul writing and describing very similar things in Romans chapter 1 verse 20. 
Listen to what he says there about this dynamic, about how everyone is exposed to the glory of God in creation. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for God's invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. Everyone is confronted with the glory of God, the power of God, the majesty of God, the might of God, as God opens his glory up to us in creation. So let me ask you this. Is your view of God, is your view of God worthy of who the heavens say he is? Is your view of God worthy of who the heavens say he is? Is your view of God big? Is your view of God God-centered? Is your view of God one that should leave you humbled in the dust, knowing that you are a creature and not a creator? Is your view of God worthy of who the heavens declare he is? This is a question of application coming out of this psalm, and it's one we all need to meditate upon to make sure we have a, a, a vision, a view, a thought of God that should induce reverence, that should induce praise, that in, should induce worship from our hearts and our minds. All of creation is declaring the glory of God. Are you joining in? Are you too declaring the glory of God? You are a part of the created order. You are a creature of God designed to declare God's glory. Are you there yet? Well, you might not be there yet because maybe, maybe your view of God is too generic. Maybe your view of God is too broad in the sense that you think, okay, God, I believe in a God. I believe that, you know, uh, something can't come from nothing. There must have been some type of uh, creator or first mover or whatever language you want to use. And, and so you have this idea that, yeah, yeah, I, okay, I'm, I'm there. But if you're only there, you're not really there. This is why David shifts gears in verses 6 and 7. And he's reminding us that the difference between someone who has a relationship with the creator of the universe isn't the same thing as someone who actually, who believes that God exists. A person who has a relationship with the creator of the universe is someone who knows God's name. That it's not enough for you to look up and conclude in a generic fashion, yeah, I believe in God, I believe that God exists. That's what, that's not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is that you're someone who knows God's name, that you've stepped into covenant relationship with the creator of the universe because you believe he's done something for you that's wooed and induced your affections and your faith and your humility and your life and your worship. I'll show you. You look at verse 7. So Paul shifts from verse 6 to verse 7, and what does he say there? He then says, the instruction of the Lord is perfect. Now, you might want to underline the word Lord. That's a different word than how he started the psalm. If you look back up in verse 1, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the word translated God in verse 1 is El. It's a generic name for God, a generic word for God. But when he comes into verse 7, he tells us this God's name. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. So he's worshiping and reveling in the fact that the creator of the universe has drawn near to his people to make a covenant commitment with the nation of Israel. So he uses the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 when he says, I am. 
And Moses is like, what does that mean? And, and God's, well, well, when somebody asks you what my name is, you tell them I am. And he's like, I don't know how to process that. Exactly. God is God. You are not. He is the I am. You are the I am not. And he begins to flesh this out over and over and over again. And so what you have in David's heart exploding onto the page of Psalm 19 is this recognition of the Lord's name. He doesn't just know that God exists. He knows who God is. And that's why we want to move from God opening his glory to us in creation to God opening his grace to us in the scriptures. That he speaks to us and he draws near to us in such a way that makes, him, makes his name known to our hearts and to our minds. So you check it out, verse 7 through 11. This is precisely where David goes next. He says, the instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The commands of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them, there is an abundant reward. Do you see the move from creation to scripture, from, from God speaking everything into existence to God speaking order and law and rule and precepts and commands into existence so that his people who are in relationship with him might know what he is like and how they, to, how they are to go about their days. God opens his grace to us in the scriptures. It's the sense in which you step outside and you look up, you can, you can know that God exists. But every time you open your Bibles and look down, that's where you're going to discover who God is. You're going to hear his name. You're going to discover his attributes. God is going to open himself up to you in life-changing, worship-inducing kinds of ways. So you have about six words in verses 7 through 11 used to describe God's word. And they're all synonymous, referring to the same amount of revelation that David is reflecting upon as he writes these words. But what I really want you to see is the grace of God's word. I want you to see what God's word does to David's heart and what it does to our hearts every time we consider the name of God and we step into hearing and reading the word of God. Notice verse 7. We see there that God's word renews our identity. It renews our identity. This is what goes down in verse 7. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. That it gives us a new sense of self. It gives us a new identity. And that's a remarkable reality. As God's word renews our sense of self. One of my favorite pictures of, of this comes from uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, which is one installment of the seven books that comprise the Chronicles of Narnia. I probably talk about this more times than, than you care to hear, but here's another one. Silver Chair uh, tells a story about a prince. And this prince isn't living with his shoulders back and his head held high. He's not carrying out his identity, living out the dignity of the role he has in the world. Instead, he's under a spell. He's under an evil spell, and, and as a result, he's forgotten who he is as it suppresses the knowledge of his identity. And, and every time uh, the sun goes down and he gets ready to go to sleep, something begins to kick up within him, and, and that suppressed knowledge begins to surface once again. But then his captors, when they see this happening and they see his shoulders kind of rolling back and his chin kind of popping up and they notice this happening, they come to him, they grab him, they throw him in the silver chair, and they bind him there. And they suppress him, and they wrap him in bondage, sealing him to that chair. And this happens over and over and over again in the prince's life. 
But then one day, the prince finds a sword. And when, his, when everything began to rise in his soul once again, and he has this sword, and his captors came to take him to the chair to bind him there, what he does is he takes the sword and he wields it. And he wields it at the chair, destroying it, dismantling it, breaking it up. And essentially what C.S. Lewis is communicating is that the reality of God's word serves as a sword to destroy our distorted senses of self. That God's word destroys our deceived senses of self. That God's word destroys that which holds us in bondage, that which holds us in captive. And so if you're living your life with your shoulders slouched and your chin down and you don't know who you are, you need to learn to wield the word. Because the word has this perpetual uh, power to renew our identity, reminding us of who God made us to be and what Jesus did to redeem us to become. And so we wield the sword to destroy our distorted identities, our deceived identities. And there's a couple of distortions that, it's gonna wanna, that you're going to find destroyed pretty quick the more you read the Bible and the more you read the scriptures. One distorted idea that most, some of you have is that you don't believe you're a sinner. Well, you read the Bible, and you're going you're gonna to learn that that distortion, that deception, it, it destroys that pretty quick. Because the Bible assures us over and over and over again that we are sinners. And the Bible tells us over and over and over again that sin is a big deal, and we can't get out of our bondage. We can't get out of our sin, so we need God's word to come to us. We need God's grace to come to us to break up that bondage. So one distorted idea is that you don't, some of you perhaps don't believe that you were a sinner in need of grace, but if you read the Bible, you're going to learn that pretty quick. But then at the same time, some of you believe that you were sinners, and, and your distorted idea is that your sin is greater than God's grace. And if you believe that your sin is greater than God's grace, then you're going to live a depressed life, you're going to live a discouraged life, you're going to live a life that doesn't glorify the gospel of grace that we're going to talk about here in a moment. But again, the more that you read the Bible, the more you let God's word come to you as he opens his grace up to you in the scriptures, the more you're going to discover, yeah, I'm a sinner in need of grace, but my sin is not greater than God's grace. That reality is going to press in and that reality is going to liberate your soul so that all of a sudden you can become honest about who you are. You can become honest about what you're about and you can experience God's redeeming, lifting, saving, renewing grace in your life over and over and over again. But not only does the scripture renew our identity, according to verse 7, it also makes us wise. That the scriptures cue us into our purpose. And you know what wisdom is, right? Wisdom is essentially knowing why you exist and living accordingly. It's knowing why you are here on this planet and living in line of or in light of that revelation, that dynamic. And every time you read the scriptures, you're being exposed to wisdom because the Bible is telling you why God put you on the planet so that you can begin to live a life that cooperates with God's design, that cooperates with God's purposes and passions and will. So wisdom is knowing your purpose and living in light of it. The opposite of that is called foolishness. It's called folly. I learned this lesson the hard way as a kid whenever I stepped outside and I noticed this ladder that was leaning up against the house and it was there so that work could be done in the gutters and cleaning the gutters and new shingles could be patched on the roof of our house and this, that, and the other. But I decided to take that ladder that was being used for a correct purpose and use it for a different purpose. So I just kind of pulled it out and I put it right in the middle of my driveway in front of my basketball goal. 
And then I climbed up that ladder, and I began to use that ladder as a launch pad so that I can dunk and feel like LeBron James or Michael Jordan or whoever the case may be. And so I would climb up this ladder, jump off, dunk the ball. I did it time and time and time again, and eventually I got cocky. And I began to back the ladder up a little further, a little further. I began to tilt the angle and make it a little more challenging until one time I climbed up the ladder. I jumped off. And when I did, I, I couldn't quite reach the rim. And my, my, the ball just kind of clung hard against the backboard. My hands just draped across the rim, slid down to the nets. My legs flew to the, towards the, the pole of the basketball goal. And then I fell down just cracking my head. It was a bad moment. I got home, and my dad, who wasn't the most merciful, compassionate man, said, Andrew, why would you do something so foolish? Why would you do something so dumb? And I was sitting there too concussed to answer and reply, and so I just kind of held the ice to my head and did that. But what I learned was that, you know, wisdom cooperates with the design and the intention of what something is for. Foolishness tries to flip the script on it. Foolishness tries to reinvent it. Foolishness tries to do things that uh, with an object or a life or something that it wasn't intended to be. So the more you read the scriptures, the more you're going to discover that you were created for the glory of God. That you were created to join creation in declaring God's glory, honoring God, worshiping God. And the more you read the Bible, you're going to be made wise because you're going to learn, okay, what does it mean to actually glorify God? How do I do that? How do I honor him? Well, you read the scriptures, you listen to what God tells you there, and you begin to obey, you begin to trust, you begin to act on faith when God's word tells you that something is wrong, something else is right, and you begin to shake what is wrong and pursue what is right, and you begin to live that type of faith. All of a sudden, you begin to grow as a wise person who's living according to your design and how God or for the reason God has put you on the planet. But not only does it make us wise, according to verse 8, it also gladdens our hearts. And you can kind of see the logic here, can't you? It gladdens our hearts. When you, when you come to an understanding of who God is, when you begin to realize who you are, and when you begin to realize why you exist in the world, that's going to gladden your heart. It's going to make you happy. It's going to make you satisfied. It's going to make you joyful. Why? Because it's, there's satisfaction that comes when we are living out who God has created and redeemed us to be. And so the scriptures then begin to gladden our hearts because it shows us how to do that dynamic. You keep reading in verse 8, and you see also that, it illuminate, that the Bible illuminates our journey, that the scriptures help us to see where we are going. I love the imagery there. It says that the command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up so that we can see where we're going and we can know what steps we need to take. Now, sure, the scripture doesn't tell you the full path that you're going to tread over the course of your lifetime, but it's going to give you just enough to take the next step and the next step and the next step, illuminating your path so that you know what is the way of wisdom, what is the way of folly, what is the way of righteousness, what is the way of unrighteousness, what actually honors God, what dishonors God. The scriptures serve as a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path as God is opening his grace to you in the scriptures. So you get into the scriptures to read these, but then verse 9. Verse 9 tells us that God's word endures forever. Now, this is a challenging dynamic because some of you are really into fads. Some of you are really into cultural developments and cultural movements and cultural shifts, and you're, you're really into what's in. And because of that, your, your love of fads and your love for what is in often makes you drift away from the only thing that will last forever. And you begin to follow temporary things. You begin to follow temporal things. You begin to follow things that are tied to the created order, to the neglect of the one thing that endures forever. 
And the challenge of that for you is that if you pursue fads, you pursue movements, you pursue everything but the scriptures, you're going to find your life to be very vulnerable. Because ultimately, you are only as durable as what you love most. You are only as durable as what you attach your affections to, what you put your faith in. And if you were attaching your affections to anything in the created order, whether it's good or bad, anything at all, if you attach your affections too much on that, then you were you are leaving yourself vulnerable to disintegrate. You're leaving yourself vulnerable to go away because we are told that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God, what? The word of God endures forever. A guy by the name of Thomas Oden helps us think about this very well when we consider that we're only as durable as what we love most or what we've put our faith and our trust in. And so Thomas Oden would say this. He says, if you choose a finite center of value, you are always anxious. If you choose a finite, that is a created thing, as your center of value, you are always anxious. Why is that? Because everything that is finite has an expiration date. Everything that is created will go away unless it is empowered and infused with the eternal word of God that endures forever. So he goes on to say, anxiety becomes neurotically intensified to the degree that you have idolized finite values that you are only as durable as what you love most. And if we're going to be a church that lasts in this city, we must be a church that recognizes that our faith, our affections, our awareness of who God is and what God is about must flow from his eternal word, and it cannot be pushed around by the fads of Christianity in this culture or the fads of Christianity in this country. And so what does that mean that we do? It means that we attach our affections. We put our faith in the one reality in the universe that lasts forever. And according to this passage and many others, that one reality is God's word. His word endures forever. But then you look at verse 11 and you begin to see another dynamic of what God's word does. And it says, in addition, your servant, your servant is warned by them. That God is gracious enough in the scriptures to warn us of things that would destroy us. He warns us about things that will lead to our floundering and not our flourishing. And every time you read a warning, hey, don't do that. It will destroy you. Understand that that is God's grace to you. That God's grace comes in both his affirmations and his explicit blessings. But God's grace also comes in his denouncements and in his warning that there are some things in this world and that there are some ways of life that are cursed and that will destroy you if you attach your affections to them too strongly. I think one of the most common warnings that we ignore in the scriptures is the warning that you can't find God, is the warning uh, against the openness of God. You see, we live in a culture in a day and age where everybody tells you that if you want to find God, you want to find your sense of self, then you need to look inside yourself. I believe that's one of the most deceptive and damning lies that exist in the world today. You cannot discover who you are by looking inside yourself. You cannot discover, discover God by looking inside yourself. You must consider how God has opened himself to you from outside of you. And he's opened himself up to you so that you might know who he is. And only when you know who God is are you going to know who you are are created and ultimately redeemed to be. 
So we don't look inside of ourselves, and you're never going to hear me tell you, hey, you know, if, you're, if you really want to shake that anxiety issue, if you really want to shake that struggle in your life, you just need to dig deep and look inside your soul, search your That's not what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you to get your eyes off yourself. I'm going to tell you to go outside and look up. I'm going to tell you to open up your Bible and look down. Because in creation and in scripture, God opens himself up to us. He opens his glory and he opens his grace. And so we want to hear his word so that we might discover who he is. And in light of him, we discover who we are. And so God's word warns us in this dynamic. And then, so you consider this. You consider how David is celebrating the fact that God opens his glory in creation. Then he opens his grace in the scriptures. But then when you turn to verse 12, something begins to happen. As he's looking up and he's looking down and he begins to see how God is opening himself up to him, something begins to open up in his soul. Something begins to stir in his heart. And so David begins to respond in verse 12 by opening himself up, so to speak. He's looking up, he's looking out, and things are being kicked up within him. Listen to what he says in verse 12. He says, who perceives his unintentional sins? A rhetorical question saying, who perceives his unintentional sins? He's like, okay, God, you are so glorious. You are so gracious. I'm, I'm seeing how you're opening yourself up to me, and, and I'm beginning to see there's a big disconnect between me and you. I'm beginning to see that you are really big, and you are really good, and I'm really small, and a lot of days I'm really not good. And so he's like, well, so who can perceive his unintentional sins? He's, he's saying, there's things in me that are so common and characteristic that I no longer see them as sin. I can't even recognize them as sin because they're so common and they're so characteristic of who I am that I don't even know about those. And so he begins to pray. He begins to confess. He begins to get honest with God about these realities. And he says, cleanse me from my hidden faults. But then he goes on, verse 13, moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. He's responding to the openness of God by being opened up himself, right? And he's opening up on two fronts. He's saying, look, I'm recognizing that I am a sinner. There's so much sin in me that a lot of it I don't even see. A lot of it I'm not even aware of. But then there are some things that he is aware of, these blatant rebellions, his, his blatant sin that's obvious to him and to everyone around him. And he begins to confess all of this to God as God has opened himself up to him. David's heart begins to open up towards God. And it's taking the form of confession. It's taking the form of petition as he's pleading with God for help, for cleansing, and for deliverance. You see, God's grace towards us in Scripture reveals how far short we fall of his glory. It reveals the disconnect between us and our God. And so you, if you just stop at verse 13, you're kind of left a little bit, you're kind of left wanting, aren't you? Gosh, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I fall so far short of this God of glory. What, is there any hope for me? And so David's confessing that in verses 12 and 13. But then when you get to verse 14, his tone changes. His tone changes when he says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So on one hand, David is saying, Look, there's so much sin in me that I can't even point it all out. But on the other hand, he's even though he's aware of that, he's still pleading for acceptance. He's still recognizing that there's a way for his heart to be accepted. How does that work? How can David be both a sinner and accepted by the God of grace and the God of glory at the same time? Well, I think the tension and the, the tension of that dynamic in verses 12 through 14 
can be resolved in the fact that David was a guy who knew God's name. And because he knew God's name, he knew what God was like. And so he calls God Lord. He's saying, you are the God who's made promises to me and promises to your people. You are the God who's been faithful to us even when we have been faithless in you. You are the God who's told us how to approach you through the sacrificial system in the Old Testament so that our sins can be cleansed and forgiven. And I know your name. I know what you are like. And so he begins to appeal to that in his prayer, saying, Lord, my rock, and get this, my redeemer. David knew that his God wasn't just a big, powerful creator. He knew that God was a personal redeemer. He knew God was a God who would draw near to his people, redeeming us from a life of slavery and sin and suffering, a God who would work on our behalf to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And what he is affirming there generically, when he just refers to Lord, my rock and redeemer, you and I can actually see more specifically, can't we? I mean, we're standing on this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We're standing on this side of the fact that God not only opens his glory to us in creation and he opens his grace to us in scripture, but God opens his arms to us in Christ. That we find our acceptance with God not because we live up to the law. We find our acceptance with God because Jesus lived up to the law and he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. One of the most remarkable things about the scriptures is that the scriptures exist to tell us that. To tell us that God opens his arms to us in Christ. This is exactly what Jesus would teach in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, there's this moment where Jesus is hanging out with a couple of disciples after he resurrected from the grave. And he's walking along this road with them and he begins to communicate some things to them. And a very interesting thing is pointed out. Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And then get this, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Do you catch it? Everything written in the scriptures, this graceful revelation was ultimately written about Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's saying Psalm 19 is about me. That's a remarkable Revelation, that's a remarkable reality. And then notice what happens next. Then what does Jesus do? He opens their minds to understand the scriptures. He begins to help them see how all of the Bible ultimately points us to Jesus and drives us to Jesus. He's helping them to understand, look, when you read the Bible, you shouldn't read the Bible and go from page to your life. No, you should read the page, go to Jesus, and then go to your life. That he is the mediator of our relationship with God. And that everything in the scriptures are driving us in Jesus' direction. And if your interaction with the grace of God in the scriptures doesn't lead you to Jesus, you're not reading the Bible well. You're not, leading the Bible faith, you're not reading the Bible faithfully. You're never going to get to the point where you say with David, man, God's word is sweeter than the honey coming from a honeycomb. And it is more valuable than gold. You're never going to get there. Because if you're reading the Bible and it's not leading you to Jesus, it's only leading you to rules, it's only leading you to law, it's leading you to the very things that will crush you and destroy you. The scriptures are ultimately about Jesus because in Christ, that's where God opens his arms up to us and he accepts us because Jesus is the one who stepped into the world as our rock, as our redeemer to do everything necessary for our salvation so that we might know God's name 
I remember when I was in seventh grade, I played football, and I know that doesn't surprise any of you, but I played football in, in uh, the seventh grade, and I remember going to work out, and uh, the first workouts on the team, and it wasn't a very good moment for me because I was the scrawniest kid in the, in the workout room, and, and they put us in groups. The strongest kids all got in one group, and the weakest kids all got in the other group. I'll let you decide which one I was in, but, but uh, they let you, the idea to decide on which group you got put in, you had to max out, which meant you had to put as much weight on the barbell that you could bench press one time, and that determined what groups you were in. Now, the barbell weighs 45 pounds. That's what it weighs without anything on it, and... Uh, and I got on the bench, and I began to try to max out. I picked up the, the, the barbell was handed to me because they just wanted us to warm up, right? And, and uh, that 45-pound barbell about crushed my chest. I mean, it just collapsed on me, and I was stuck. I could not get it up. It was too heavy. I couldn't carry it. I needed somebody to come in, lift it up off my chest so that I could go free. Somebody much stronger than me. Well, the reality is if you are reading the Bible and you're not recognizing the Lord as your rock and your redeemer, you're not letting the Bible drive you to who the Bible is ultimately about and who it's ultimately about isn't you, it's Jesus. If you're not reading the Bible that way, it's going to crush you. The law of God is too heavy for you to carry. His instructions are too much for you to live out. So what do you need? You need Jesus to step onto the scene of the world and say, look, I've come not to erase the law, not to reduce the law, not to make the law more manageable or easier. No, I've come to utterly fulfill the law, to carry it for you so that when Jesus would go to the cross, he carried the law there for us. And when he would shed his blood and he would die on the cross, our hearts can now be forgiven and cleansed and washed and our identities can be renewed. All because Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so when it comes to seeing how God opens his glory to us in creation, his grace to us in scriptures, ultimately is to drive us to the fact that he opens his arms to us in Christ because in Christ we find acceptance in Christ, we find cleansing. In Christ, we find a relationship with God whereby we know his name. And ultimately, his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to consider these truths tonight? I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work within us to open our minds to understand the scriptures and to see the beauty of the Savior. I pray that if any of us are trying to live our lives uh, apart from how you've opened yourself up to us. I pray that you would give us grace to repent, to confess, and to see, to see how you desire to be our everything. You desire to be our rock and our redeemer. Thank you, God, for giving us an intimate picture of that reality in the person and work of Jesus. So God, give us grace to run to him over these next few moments. Give us grace to run with him over every moment in every moment of our lives in this world. God, we need you. We're asking for you to make our hearts and our lives acceptable in Jesus' name. Amen.